the word of God where it says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Well, I think uh, this passage here that we're looking at this morning deals with two of the most uh, difficult issues in the whole Bible. It deals with the two issues of uh, confrontation and forgiveness. Uh, Does anyone actually like confrontation, confronting people about things? Uh, If you do, there's probably some deeper issues uh, at stake that need to be addressed. And forgiveness is difficult as well, isn't it? In the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus says forgiveness is like uprooting a mulberry bush. Mulberry bushes were known for having kind of wide and uh, intricate roots that made made the bushes hard to pull up. 
Forgiveness is like a is like a bush that's hard to uproot. Jesus uh, told his disciples uh, and he's telling us that confrontation and forgiveness, as hard as they might be, are essential parts of being the Christian community, of being God's people and of being followers of Jesus. Before we uh, look at Jesus' wisdom about how to confront sin, it's really important, I think, to see first that what Jesus is saying here about confronting sin and dealing with sin flows out of what he has just said. So in the verses before the passage that we read, uh, Jesus is talking about how God is a God who pursues the lost sheep. When uh, one sheep wanders away, God leaves the 99 and goes out after that one sheep and brings him back. Verse 14 finishes, In the same way your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. And then verse 15 carries straight on. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. So these instructions about confronting sin and dealing with sin actually flow out of what Jesus has just said about God's heart for not losing any one of his sheep. How does God do that? How does God go after his sheep? He uses us. God expresses his love for his lost sheep through us, through his people. So Jesus gives us this model for how to go about that, how to do that. And he begins by saying, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Brother uh, just means fellow Christian. So if your fellow Christian sins against you, go and uh, show them their fault. The first step uh, then is is to do that, is to confront them yourself, to do it, as Jesus says, just between the two of you. I suspect the more common alternative in dealing with the faults of others is gossip. So instead of actually going and, and talking to the person saying, I was, I was a bit offended actually by something that uh, happened or I'm a bit concerned about this, we, uh, we talk about it behind their back and go, you'll never guess what, uh, what Bob did to me. You know, Bob, uh, so and so and so and so. We never actually talk to the person themselves but Jesus says, no, if someone sins against you, go and, go and talk to them about it. And if they listen to you, fantastic, you've won your brother over and it doesn't need to go any further than that. Of course, you might also confront them uh, and after talking it through, realise that there's been a horrible misunderstanding, that they said something, you were offended by it and that they didn't mean that at all. Which is another reason to go to people first rather than to gossip about it or to go to, uh, to, 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 go to other people and involve others as the first step. No, go and confront them yourself, Jesus says. If they won't listen to you, the second step is to, Jesus says, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus is quoting there from the Old Testament where uh, a charge couldn't be held against someone unless there was uh, more than one witness. Uh, And here, what Jesus seems to be saying is take these other people along, maybe not so much in terms of testifying that something has taken place but also in terms of adjudicating and kind of evaluating uh, what has actually happened, whether there's kind of grounds behind this situation. Jesus doesn't say who to take with you. Uh, He doesn't say you have to take the elders of the church but the idea I think is just to take one or two mature Christians along with you and those one or two mature Christians can help the two of you who have this disagreement, they can help you evaluate the situation. That way it's not your word against theirs. I think what you've done is wrong. No, 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 I think what you've done is wrong. 
with other people there, with other wise and mature Christians there as well, they can help us think through the issues and work out what's actually going on. For example, someone uh, might always be speaking to you in a very demeaning way and you're concerned about it because it's hurtful and because you think it's a kind of a bad witness for the Christian community. So you decide to take it up with that person uh, and you say that, you say, well, I feel like you're often demeaning me and it's, uh, it's hurtful and they don't agree with you. What do you do? You, you find another uh, mature Christian or maybe uh, two others uh, and you take it back to that person and those people who go with you, they can say, yes, actually, you know, Bob, I think, I think you do sometimes, quite often speak in a demeaning way to, to that person. Yeah, maybe there is grounds for you to repent and, and to deal with that. Or they might say, no, I, I don't think Bob is being, uh, being demeaning. I think he's, he's just, uh, you know, I think you've just got the wrong in, end of the stick. Uh, you, you know, you've made a mountain out of a molehill. Jesus says if they don't listen to you when you go on your own, then take others with you. Think through the situation with others. Deal with it in the context of, of other people who can help you, who can pray about it with you. The third step Jesus calls for uh, in dealing with the situation is to deal with it publicly. In verse 17 he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. There's kind of four steps if you like, not really three. The third step is to tell people, to tell the church what's happened and the hope still is that people might repent, that people might turn away from their sin and humble themselves before Christ. But if that doesn't happen, then the only thing left to do, Jesus says, is to treat them as a pagan or a tax collector, which is pretty strong language coming from Jesus, isn't it really? Because Jesus is, is the friend of the tax collector and the sinner. And Jesus says if someone won't humble themselves and, and, and deal with the sin in their life after all those steps have been taken with prayer and with love and with compassion, then you need to treat that seriously. What Jesus uh, wants people to do is he wants people to realise that uh, blatant sin has no place in the church. Last week uh, we saw that uh, that to, be, to enter the kingdom of heaven we had to turn away from sin and humble ourselves before Jesus. And so what does it say then about a person who's in the church who refuses to turn away from sin? Someone says, look, I think there's something in your life that, that, uh, that you need to address and they, don't, and they won't listen. And then you take another one or two people along and say, look, this really is a bit of an issue. I think that you need to address and they're still unwilling to repent and to humble themselves and then it becomes before the church and, and the church is made aware and then people are still unwilling to humble themselves and to confess their sin. What does that say about the place of humility and confession in that person's life if they're unable, having been confronted, to humble themselves and repent? It's not about, it's not about publicly shaming people, it's not about embarrassing people and go, oh, you wicked person. It's about saying, is this person really, has this person really embraced the gospel? And if they haven't really embraced the gospel, then the most loving thing to do is to say, you haven't embraced the gospel and you need to embrace the gospel. You need to humble yourselves before Jesus and, and confess your sins uh, before him. 
Uh, I remember once talking to, uh, with a friend uh, who was a lesbian uh, and she was telling me that uh, she told me that she was uh, a Christian and that her and her partner had uh, found trouble finding a church where they felt at home. Uh, and I th- I, that was a really difficult situation. Uh, and it took me ages to work out what I should have said uh, to, to that situation because what I wanted to say was, I wanted to say, I would love so much for you to come to my church and embrace the gospel. But because she claimed to be a Christian, I also felt that I needed to say, but before you can do that, you need to know that repentance before Christ is important. You see, she needed to know that she needed to leave behind her lesbian life and her lesbian identity. If she hadn't have claimed to be a Christian, it wouldn't have been such an issue. I would have said, come along to church and hear the gospel. But the moment she claimed to be a Christian, she raised the bar on what Christ is calling her to do. By claiming to know Christ, she raised the bar. We ought to expect people who claim to know Christ to be people who humble themselves to Jesus' authority and humble themselves to Jesus' power to save them from sin. Well, those things are hard to say, aren't they? It's hard to, 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 be, to just put it out there and to, to say the truth, to speak the truth, especially to people that we love. I remember a minister of mine once saying that we often say that the reason that we don't say things like that is because we love other people too much. But the real reason often is that we love ourselves too much and we're afraid of what it will cost us if we say that. We're afraid of the relationship that it will cost us. Two of the most uh, sickening experiences in my life have been in confronting friends both times over the issue of music piracy. I, I said to them, Jesus says you cannot be a thief and enter the kingdom of heaven and you're a thief, you're stealing things from people that don't belong to you, you have no reason to believe that you've embraced the gospel. Thankfully, uh, both of them repented, but I still feel sick to the core of my stomach when I think about those moments and those experiences. And maybe it's the same for you when you've confronted people in the past over sins in their lives. It's not easy. In fact, it's very, very difficult, which is why Jesus goes on to say to give us this great encouragement in verses 18 to 20. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two uh, of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. The first statement about binding and loosing is really just saying that insofar as we preach the good news of repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ, insofar as we preach the good news which confronts sin and challenges unrepentance, insofar as we preach the good news which assures forgiveness of sins for those who repent, insofar as we do that, God is using us to do his great gospel work. When we confront sin, God is using us to confront sin. When we apply the balm of the gospel, God is using us to apply the balm of the gospel. Why should we confront sin? Why should we confront sin with boldness? Because God is using us 
to work out his great gospel plan. Jesus isn't saying that the church always gets it right as though every person who's ever been kind of uh, excommunicated from a church, that that's always been right. There have been some horrible, horrible times in the past where that's gone drastically wrong. Neither, for that matter, is it saying that every time a church says to a person, you've received the gospel and you've really been forgiven, the church doesn't always get that right either. Jesus is just saying that God uses us to convict people of sin and to reassure people of the truth of the gospel. And the second statement that Jesus gives by way of encouragement is about prayer. He's continuing on that theme about the the confrontation of sin. Uh, The two or three people who are gathering for prayer are the two or three people who went to confront the person about sin. Usually uh, when, we, when we take this verse we take it as a statement about prayer in general but, but in the context, the way that it's joined up with what Jesus has been saying, he's talking about the situation where we confront sin and address sin. Jesus is saying, when you do that, when you're gathering together to address sin, I'm there with you. When you're gathering together to pray about this person who, who needs to deal with the sin in their life, I'm there with you. I'm hearing your prayers. Jesus and the Father are always with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. But to know that they're with us, particularly when we're doing difficult and emotional things like confronting sin uh, in each other's lives, it's a special encouragement to know that at those times God is with us. To know that God hears our prayers when we're trying to restore a brother or a sister in Christ to, to repentance, that's a special encouragement to know that God is with us. It's a special encouragement because it's such hard work. So in the first half of this passage, uh, Jesus gives us that guidance on how to wisely and lovingly and prayerfully uh, deal with sin in the church. And then Peter asks that really difficult question that comes to anyone who has had to deal with these things ever in the past. Peter says, how many times do you go through the process? How many times should, should we confront and then receive back and confront and then receive back and confront and then receive back? How many times should we forgive someone who's fallen to sin? Peter says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? The consensus among the, the, uh, the Jewish rabbis of the day was that three times was the maximum number and so Peter was kind of being pretty generous spirited when he said, how about seven? You know, I reckon uh, I could do seven times and Jesus just blows that out of the water. He says, forget about seven, think more in the line of 77 which again is not just, uh, you know, we shouldn't keep a tally as though... Uh, I do have several tallies on the wall for all the people in the church. So just how many times have I forgiven that person? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying lots and lots of times. We should forgive people lots and lots of times. And in case we don't get the message, he, he tells that parable that Ben read for us before about the servant who was forgiven, forgiven a massive debt, and then who refused to forgive uh, his fellow servants. Uh, the parable that Jesus tells is pretty straightforward, I think. It's pretty penetrating, uh, pretty hard-hitting. And in, ga- in case we don't get the point, Jesus says at the very end, 
this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So forgiveness for the people of God, for the church of God, isn't an optional extra. We can't just go, well, I'll have Jesus, but but I'll leave forgiveness to the side. No, it lies at the very heart. To forgive others lies at the very heart of what it means to have received forgiveness from God. I remember uh, some years ago reading a book, I think it was by Martin Lloyd-Jones, but I, I can't even remember what book it was in, but he was telling the story of going to visit a man on his deathbed uh, and this man was, was dying and one of the things that this guy said as he lay there dying, he said, you know what, I can never forgive so-and-so. I just can never, I just can't get past that. And I remember whoever it was who was writing uh, saying that that terrified him. He was so shocked by what this person was saying. This person was lying on the deathbed. They're about to meet God face to face and expecting to receive the forgiveness of God and they said, but I can never forgive this other person. Forgiveness isn't a wall that we need to climb over to receive God's forgiveness for ourselves but our inability to forgive other people demonstrates a failure on our behalf to grasp the riches of the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is a hard and a costly business and it's only in the Gospel that we can find the resources for deep and costly forgiveness. It's only when we grasp what we've received from God that we can really forgive others. Our debt to God was enormous. The guy in the parable owed 10,000 talents. Now one talent was what a worker expected, the average worker expected to earn in half a lifetime. So in half a lifetime you would earn one talent. So 10,000 talents is the amount you'd earn in 5,000 lifetimes. It's a pretty substantial amount. Uh, it's also, it was a, also a weight measurement as well. So 10,000 talent, talents was 270 tonnes of silver. So it's a lot of money that this guy owed his master. His master had forgiven him 5,000 lifetimes of debt and he couldn't, receive, he couldn't forgive his fellow servant who owed him a few dollars. Next to what God has forgiven us, the things that we need to forgive others look like small change. Perhaps there's, uh, there's someone that you need to forgive uh, but you're finding that very difficult to do. Maybe there's a, there's a bitterness that is, has been unconquerable in your life. Where do you start? The place to start is by asking God to give you a deeper appreciation of the gospel and of what God has done in Jesus Christ. You might pray, Father, you've forgiven me. You've forgiven me so much, more than I can possibly even understand. Please help me to forgive this person. Help me to apprehend how much it cost you to forgive me. And help me to take on the very small cost of forgiving this other person. We need to keep forgiving people all the time. We don't just do it once, but we need to keep forgiving people every day. Often the greatest difficulty, I think, in forgiving people is not 
to do the one big thing, I mean that can be hard, often the harder thing is to keep forgiving the small things time and time and time again for the 77th time. I can't believe I'm having to do with this again. I can't believe I'm having to forgive this person again. It's the unthinking remarks, the lack of personal care that someone shows you. It takes a deep reservoir of love filled by the gospel to be able to keep doing that, to be able to keep giving out forgiveness. And we don't just need to do it all the time. Jesus says we need to do it from the heart. It's not that kind of fake forgiveness that says it'll be okay and then we remain consumed with bitterness. You know, I was shocked a few months ago, uh, I live on a block, I have this two units on the block and me and my neighbour, we share a common driveway and sometimes people come to visit uh, my neighbour and they park in the driveway so I can't get out and, uh, and my neighbour would always come and she'd go, I'm so sorry, they parked in the driveway again uh, you know, when I needed to get out and i go, it's fine, really, it's okay, it doesn't bother me at all and I'd be sitting there inside my house going, I can't believe they parked in the driveway again. <laughs> And I suddenly realised, I, here I was thinking, I was sitting in my house thinking, I'm so magnanimous, isn't that wonderful? I just, every time she says apologise, I say, no, it's, it's fine, it's really fine. And I was so shocked when I sat down and I realised, actually, I'm not magnanimous at all. I'm being eaten up by bitterness. Inside, while externally I'm presenting this superficial impression of being wonderful and magnanimous. And God says, that's not Okay. We need to forgive people from the heart and not that kind of fake forgiveness that says, no, that's okay and then seethes with anger for the rest of our lives. We need to forgive our fellow Christians all the time and we need to do it from the heart and we need to do it with the deep, rich resources that we find in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, the more I've thought about this chapter, the more I've realised how important it is to keep these two halves of this passage together, to keep these two different ideas, the confrontation and forgiveness, to keep them together. You see, we might be a church known for extravagant forgiveness. The depth of, and the breadth of our forgiveness might know no bounds. But if we're a church that doesn't confront sin, then that's no good either. You see, it's not loving to just perpetually forgive people and never confront the underlying issues that exist. It's not loving to keep overlooking someone's unkind words and to never challenge them about it. If someone speaks unkind words 77 times and you forgive them, well, you should also probably take them aside and say, you know, you seem to have a bit of an issue with saying unkind things. Maybe that's something that you need to deal with. One of the very worst things that we often do in the church is to not address sin. We might think it's more loving to always let things go, but it isn't. What's more, instead of actually addressing the issue, instead we often become increasingly bitter. So we might be concerned by someone's hypocrisy, which is deeply hurtful to us, and instead of quietly approaching them in love, we march on, stolidly admiring our forgiving spirit and increasingly becoming hardened in bitterness but we've never carried our cross long enough 
to approach them in love and to say, there's a sin here that you need to deal with and I want to help you work through that and I want to pray for you and I want to love you through that. We saw last week that it would be better to have a heavy stone tied around our necks and be cast into the depths of the sea than it would be to lead people into sin. And woe to us if our indifference to sin causes us to give up dealing with sin and leads people headlong into a life without genuine repentance. Woe to us that we love people so little and ourselves so much that we're content to see them wander off. God will leave uh, the 99 sheep and go after that one. But we might be so forgiving that we never go after anyone and just let them wander off. What's more, holding these two halves together helps us to answer some really difficult questions. What if someone's abused children? Where does forgiveness come into that? Should we just let that go? Should we just forgive them and move on? No. Sin needs to be confronted. Sin needs to be dealt with. Sins like that need to be dealt with not just by the church and by the people involved but by the police as well because it's a crime. One of the reasons I think that the Catholic Church has got itself into so much trouble with sexual abuse is because they've failed to confront sin openly and publicly and honestly. Woe to us if we fail to address sin. The two have to go together. Forgiveness and confrontation. But then on the other hand, we might be a church of Jesus so concerned about sin, so concerned about confronting sin, that we lack forgiveness. We might grow tired of forgiving people. I've forgiven them 77 times. They don't seem to change. Imagine how God must feel with us. I've forgiven him 77 times. I've pointed it out from the Bible 77 times and he still hasn't changed. Or we might be so committed to confrontation that we confront even the most minor sins. Imagine if God treated us like that all the time, that every time we, we uh, committed a sin there was a bolt of lightning from the sky you know, causing grave bodily harm. It would be so discouraging, wouldn't it? And imagine if we treated each other like that, being so committed to confronting sin that we never forgave things without mentioning it. I'd like you to realise I just forgave you the other day. Now you see, holding those two things together is so important. It takes great wisdom to know when to confront and when to forgive. Holding those two things together actually seems almost impossible and ultimately it's only in the cross of Jesus that we can hold them together as tightly as we can because the cross shows us that sin is serious. The cross shows us that sin can't just be swept under the carpet. It needs to be dealt with. The cross shows us that God dealing with sin came at great personal cost. 
And if we need to deal with the smaller affairs of our own lives, it's going to come at great personal cost to ourselves as well. But the cross also shows us the other side, not just that sin is serious, but that forgiveness and mercy is extravagant. The mercy of God knows no bounds. Sin is serious, but the grace and the forgiveness of God is full and free to those who would receive it in repentance and faith. And our church life, our lives, need to hold those two things together as as tightly as God does in the cross. We need to know that sin is serious, but also that forgiveness is full and free to those who would receive it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you are infinitely more forgiving and more generous-hearted than any of us. Lord, thank you that when we bear grudges for 20 years, for 30 years, for 40 years, you cast our sins into the depths of the sea, never to resurface. Lord, help us to know the great riches of what you have done in Jesus Christ and help us to extend the mercy that you have shown to us to others as well. Lord, give us great patience in that. Give us largeness of heart. Give us great wisdom as well. Help us to know when to forgive and when we need to confront sin, when we need to make an issue of something in love and with gentleness and with great patience. Lord, we pray for friends that we might have who've wandered away, who've wandered into sin. Lord, help us to have the strength and the trust in you to be able to confront them and to challenge them. Lord, help us to pray that you would bring them back, that you would use us, that what has been bound on earth would be bound in heaven and what has been loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven in heaven. Father, help us to hold these two things together in our lives and in our life together as a church. For the sake of your name we pray. Amen.